0: appreciate you guys coming. Super Bowl Sunday has become a national holiday in the United States and from many parts of the world. So we appreciate you guys coming tonight. You get bonus points when you get to heaven. No, not really, but I wish I could. If I had the ability to, I would bestow upon you bonus points, but there are no such things. But uh, well, I'm very glad that you are here tonight. It is the Lord's Day. We celebrate this day. as the day that Christ rose from the dead, and that is more important than even football. Believe it or not. So if you don't mind, open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. To the book of Hebrews. We will begin. Oh, appreciate the band. These guys make more sound. The four people over here make the most amazing music and book. Every week I'm astonished. Are you guys glad that we have them? Amen. They do a wonderful, wonderful job. Appreciate them. Individually talented and together. There is just a wonderful synergy that is there. They're just amazing. Uh, we're in, We're studying Hebrews, so... Let us get going. We've looked at chapter one. We've looked over how great uh, Jesus is. Jesus is indeed greater. There is no one greater than him. The entire book is built upon that fact that this is the ultimate, that God has presented Jesus and there is no one greater than him. No one in the past, no one in the future. He is God in the flesh. And this, the pastor here, the writer, the author of Hebrews is telling his, his people, telling these people just how great he is. Last week, just a quick overview, we looked at chapter three, uh, Jesus is even greater than Moses, which was a very big deal. Moses was a highly important figure in the Old Testament. Uh, the law was given to him. He had an unusual access to God, an unusual relationship with God that really no one else had. But he is as important as he was. And the Jews lifted him up and exalted him. And still to this day, many do over Jesus. And here the author in chapter 3 is telling us that, yes, Moses was important. He, but he was a servant of God. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, the son of God is over the house and is the builder of the entire house while Moses is in the house. all right. So there's a major, major contrast here. Moses was faithful. He was a great figure in the Old Testament. God blessed him with the law, a leader of the Israelite people. But Jesus is even greater than he is. We also looked in chapter 3, several passages there that encourage us to check our hearts to make sure that we truly do believe. And the comparison is given in chapter 3 and we'll be in 4 as well of the Israelites who were held captive in Egypt. They are released, but then they rebel against God and they are promised the promised land. But those that were 20 years and up did not get to enter the promised land due to their unbelief. And there is a comparison that we're going to see here that challenges us, and he's challenging those who are hearing this to check to make sure that they are true believers. Just because they were they were in the uh Israelite tribe or the the Israelite people, the nation, just because they were part of that did not mean that they were going to enter into the promised land. And he's drawn a comparison to the people then that he is writing to and to us today. Just because you're in a building, it does not mean that you have true belief. So he, he tells them to hold fast to true belief, to check yourself, to make sure that you have real Solid belief in Jesus Christ as your savior and that you're not just with the group that is on the way to the promised land But you are one of those who is going to enter into the final promised land All right. Well, let's get on to chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it again Here we see this comparison remember to the Israelites who were in the desert, who were on their way to the promised land, did not get to enter the promised land. They failed to reach it. Here he's drawing an analogy out to us, to the people he's writing to and to us today, that, that we are desiring to enter into the promised land. Not speaking of the geographical location of Israel, but to the final and ultimate promised land that is in heaven. So he's acknowledging here, he says, let therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you're still alive, you, you, you know how to get there, it is through belief, alright, it still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The author of Hebrews is highly concerned about the people he is writing to, and he loves them, he cares for them, he loves them so much, he is willing to warn them that it takes more than just being a part of this visible group in order to enter into the final promised land. That there are people who are part of churches every day who are not real believers. It is more than walking into a building. It is more than signing a card. It is more, and we went over this last week, and even being baptized, it comes down to belief. And what do you believe in? Do you believe in the gospel, the Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead to pay for our sins? So it's a matter of belief. And he is challenging them, Hey, check to make sure you have real belief. He even says here in verse one, he says, let us fear. It is not just the pastor's role to check on each person's salvation, even though we should be doing that. I should be doing that. Pastors should be doing that as well to talk to the people who are wanting to be members of a church. One of the worst things you could possibly do is allow a person to be a member of a church, right? Who is not a true believer. Because you have just stamped your approval on them. And now you have filled your church up with a person who is now a member of your congregation. You have approved that you believe that they are saved. And if they're truly not. So now you have a weed amongst the wheat and this goat amongst the sheep. And yet you've bestowed upon this goat all the rights of a sheep. And now the goat thinks that he's going to enter into heaven because a pastor is done. So even from the church's standpoint, from the pastor's standpoint, we have to be very careful when people are desiring to be members of the church, to make sure they have true belief it's a great opportunity to make sure they've really believed in Jesus Christ. But notice, and does not let me fear. The words word he uses here is the plural, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So in other words, it's not just the responsibility of I, Trey Tally over the congregation of the church at Pecan Creek, but it is us. It is something that we all do, that we all should be checking on each other. I can, I'm just one person. I can only have so many conversations a day. I can only have so many lunches per day. I like to have a lot of lunches per day, but usually I only have one of those per day. And I can only meet with so many people, but, but you as the church, you as the body that's out and about and talking to people in your household, your family, your friends, you have the ability to check on your people that you are around and to make sure that they don't fail to reach heaven, the final promised land, to make sure that they have true belief. Belief in what? We're going to get to that, but it's quite obvious from what we know about Hebrews already. The entire book is about Jesus Christ. One of my favorite theologians from the 1500s wrote this. He says, For it is the duty of a good shepherd, speaking of the pastor, and watching over the whole flock, so to care for every sheep that no one may be lost. Nay, we ought also so to fill For one another, that everyone should fear for his neighbors as well as for himself. In other words, once again, it is not just the pastor's sole responsibility. It is all of us checking on each other. Is heaven real? Is hell real? Is there a final judgment? Is Jesus truly the only way to get to heaven? And the answer is yes. All caps, exclamation points at the end. And we know this to be true. So we are called upon to check on those who are around us. This particular call here in verse one, even though we are commanded to go and be witnesses everywhere we go, this particular call to be a witness, to check on, to make sure that those you're traveling with are going to reach their final destination and not fall short like they did in the desert and they died, did not get to enter the promised land. This call to check on those you are around is exactly that. It's who are you with? Who are your friends? Who are your co-workers? Who's your family? But also, these are the ones that are claiming to be believers. And today we have lots of people who say they are Christians, but they are not true Christians. They say the name, uh, they use the word, but they have a whole different definition to it. And they're not true believers. And that we, as we understand the gospel, are supposed to check on those that are around us to make sure they reach the promised land, to make sure they're believing in the right one. All right, uh, just a quick look over. You're probably right where you're at, but you see this also from last week in chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another how often every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, here, Chapter three, chapter four, they're flowing together. He is encouraging us to check on one another. Uh, Quick question, and, and just should Christians exhort other Christians not to sin, ignore their sin, or condone their sin? Now look at the screen just for a moment. It should be an obvious answer. I believe we would all agree. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but you would be amazed that There are many who would disagree with this. Should Christians exhort other Christians not to sin, ignore their sin, or to condone their sin? Uh, What do we as the church do if a believer will not repent? So in other words, we have what are we as Christians supposed to do according to Hebrews and according to these other passages that we'll look at just briefly. If we have one of us, uh, one of our people, one of our ours who says they're a believer who says they are a, a participant in this church a member of this church and they are with us we come along and exhort them and we believe that they are they're falling their 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 belief is not truly in Jesus Christ and their lifestyle is not lining up with a repentant regenerated heart who is longing after God instead they're pursuing sin and and they're they're hardened and they're continuing in that sin what are we supposed to do we're supposed to to bring them up and, and encourage them to come along, come on this is sin, get out of this sin, but what if what if they continue to stay out of this and this touches on and I want to touch on this just briefly a matter that is called church discipline. if you would like to turn there, you can, but I do have it on the screen first Corinthians chapter five verse 11 through 13 and again, we're just going to touch on this tonight, but it's something that we do need to be aware of. Uh, people who claim to be believers, what are we supposed to do when they sin? They continue to sin. They will not stop their their lifestyle of sin that they are pursuing. Uh, they take down the church. Their their sin spreads within the church. They've taken the holiness of the church away. They've ruined the testimony of the church and the community. What are we supposed to do? Not not the pastor by himself, but but we. First Corinthians chapter five, verse eleven through thirteen says, "But now." I'm writing to you, and this is Paul's extremely stern here. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Again, someone who claims to be a believer. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from amongst you. This takes a lot of people by surprise when they see a passage like this. You know, the number one most memorized passage today, it was John 3:16. What as far as just on the street asking people, quote a verse that used to be the most common verse known Did you know, it's been changed over the years. Not John 3.16, but as far as the number one most memorized verse. It is not the one we just read, that's for sure, but it is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Judge not, depending on your version, i got ESV here, that you be not judged. That became the most popular verse even amongst non-Christians. Because now if they were called out for doing anything, they would simply say state this verse and the churches have come along, sadly, many times and agreed with this. But according to Paul's commands here in first Corinthians chapter five, verse 11 through 13, he says that we are commanded to actually judge. What is the difference here? Well, we are supposed to judge those who claim to be believers, where if they're in a lifestyle of sin, they're revealing that they have not had true belief. They're not truly believers. They have not called upon Christ. They have not believed in Him. And we're supposed to expose that. So we come alongside them according to Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17, and we try to pull them out to to reveal this sin to them. If they still will not come out of that sin, we have other believers come with us. We call them out or go to them and say, hey, you're in a lifestyle of sin and you're revealing that, that this you're liking the sin more than you are pursuing God, you're, you're showing yourself to be a non-believer if they still will not repent and turn from it. According to Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 that we just looked at, they're actually supposed to be removed from the church. Now, is that because of love or is that because of hate? It's actually because of love. Because the, one of the worst things you could possibly do is have a person in the church living and doing life with believers on their way to heaven and a goat with the sheep who is in sheep's clothing, a uh, kind of a sheep outfit over the goat, you might say. And, and if, if we continue to say that that person is right with God, that person is on their way to heaven, they're on their way to the promised land and not reveal that they're falling short, the worst thing a church could do is actually continually condone, continually say we're not going to judge that. And as we enter the promised land, we look behind and see one of our own has been left behind. So one of the most loving things we can do is call a person out. And even the goal of 1 Corinthians 5 is for that person to eventually realize, look, this Christian was against me. These other Christians were against me. The entire church is against me. Maybe I truly am not a believer. And it's a wake up call to realize that I am lost and I'm in need of a savior. So Uh, Long story short, going back to Hebrews here, chapter one, we are supposed to check on those around us. It is okay to do so. These are those who claim to be believers. We're actually commanded to do so. All right. Carry on. Let's look at verse. I believe we're on verse two, 15 minutes on verse one. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. This is not good. All right. I'm going to go fast. Uh, Verse two, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. No benefit to them. Verse 2 says here uh, the same message was heard by all of those who were in the desert. All of Israel heard this, but it did not do some of them any good at all. It had no benefit to them. They still died in the desert, they did not enter the promised land. And so it is with us today that there is the message, there is this gospel message. That God has provided salvation for our sin through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that He made there. This message still goes out. This message is powerful, but for some it has no benefit because they will not believe. They will not hear. They will not enter into the promised land. Uh, It also says here in verse 2, United by faith with those who listen. Let me read the whole thing again. For good news came to us just as it did to them But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. There is this union that we have. Ephesians 1, verse 13, 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul unites himself with them. The these Ephesians are believers. He is a believer. We are united with Paul because we believe the same. We are united with the uh, church at Ephesus because we believe. All right. Second Corinthians one twenty two on the screen says who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There is this union amongst other believers. There is also this union with Christ that. Upon belief in this gospel, the Holy Spirit resides in us and is a seal, is a guarantee that we are His and this union will never be broken. So as we study the book of Hebrews, it's not about doubting and questioning and always wondering, am I still saved? Have I lost my salvation? I sinned today. So now am I still saved? Or did I lose my salvation because I sinned? No, no, no. It is a check. Checking on your belief. What do you believe in for your salvation? But it is not to make you nervous. It's just to make sure that you are truly believing in God's message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest as He has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me read that again. For we who have believed enter that rest as He has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Believed in what? Look at verse three, for we who have believed, enter that risk, believe in what? Can you just believe in anything? That seems to be quite common today. As long as you believe in something, then you'll make it to wherever we are all going. Right. I picked up a hymnal uh, kind of by accident this week, and it was a Unitarian Church hymnal. And if you know anything about the Unitarian Church, it's just it's based on this right here. It's just that word. Just believe in what? Just, uh, just believe. It doesn't matter. Just believe in something and you'll end up wherever we're all going. All right. So the whole hymnal, I, I couldn't help myself as I looked through the hymnal. Like it was titled like our traditional uh, old time Southern Baptist hymnals and it had like, you know, exaltation. So I looked over there at exalting. Who are they going to exalt? They have no idea who they're exalting, all right? It's just a hymn of exaltation, and it's just the weirdest thing because the whole hymnal is music that has no object for it. They're praising no one. There's no center to this at all. It's just singing to sing, believing to believe, and that's it. That is not enough. Our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. You can't just create your own God. You can't create your own whatever you want to believe in and it will get you there. That's the opposite of what the Bible says. And that's the opposite of what Hebrews is saying here as well. It is believe. Acts chapter 16, verse 30 says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household as well. There is this belief that, yes, we have, but it's not just a belief to believe, it is a belief in the Lord Jesus, His perfect life, His atoning sacrifice on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, He has been exalted at the right hand of God. This is who we believe in. Oftentimes we see this word, it's a very popular word, the believe. Um, You see it on shirts, you see it, it was used quite a while for Disney, you know, believe and Certain holiday figures um, uh, will, will use the word believe. You know, if you believe enough, then you kind of create this individual appear type deal, or create the magic upon your level of belief. This is not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying that it's a certain belie- believing in your own belief that gets you to the promised land. It's a believing in something. What is the object of this belief? The object of our belief is God. And he has provided salvation through this one. The entire book is written about through Jesus Christ. Uh, let's move on to. Uh, oh, let me do one other verse here. I believe I have it on the screen. First uh, Thessalonians two thirteen, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Emphasis on the end, that this this was written to the believers there at Thessalonica, and this is the word they heard. Uh, Paul preached the gospel. They heard the word. They accepted that word. They put their belief in it, and that word was at work in you believers. So, again, a difference. Uh, The author of Hebrews is writing that there's unbelievers and there are believers, but they are mixed together to make sure that you are truly a believer if you look at verse three, I know we haven't made it too far, but if you look at verse three one more time, you see that there is a we and there is a they in this verse for we who have believed enter that rest. Um, skip on down just a little ways and it says they shall not enter my rest. Uh, there's lots of things that have been put to this saying that there's two types of people in the world, you know. Uh, some people will say, well, there's male and female. Some people say some people pay taxes, some people don't pay taxes. Or there's all this, these two types of people in the world they try to minimize it down to. But truly in the biblical sense, as God sees it, there is there's, there's the we and the they. There are the sheeps and the goats. There are those who are believers and there are those who are non-believers. And that's really all it comes down to because that's the final judgment. Is, yes, there is God, all people before him, and there is the great separation. There's eternity in heaven. There's eternity in hell. And it is the we, the believers, and the they, and the non believers. There is the great separation. And for, for many churches, even within the very walls of the church, there will be a final separation of those people, and all will not enter in. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, a pretty common passage you've probably heard before, says Jesus' own words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. The, the, these people were were, were it's so, so uh, uh, in false belief that they were actually thinking they were going to make it because they had been in, they had been amongst other Christians and right there with them and, and we did all these things in your name, but they were not true believers. just as he never knew them. They had depart from me for I never knew you at all. In fact, everything you thought, the, the reasons you thought you were getting here are totally wrong because the object of your faith was not me. It was in yourselves and what you thought you were doing to get here. All right, let's look at, carry on with verse three and we'll go into verse four and continue a little ways. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. uh, Verse 6, since, no, I'm sorry, verse 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. All right, there's a lot going on and he's carrying, uh, the writer of uh, Hebrews here is carrying on this 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 story of Israel, how they were in bondage, how they received the word of God, how they came out of bondage from Egypt, how they were on their way to the promised land. However, many did not believe they fell away. Some entered the promised land. However, was that the ultimate? Was that their whole purpose? Was that God's whole purpose was for this certain group to actually enter in to a specific part of geography on earth? Uh, was this geographical location the whole point of the Bible, the whole point of the story. And David picks this up. The writer of Hebrews picks up from what David says way over in the book of Psalms uh, many, 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 many years later. And now David is in, in the promised land. He says, this isn't it, all right? Th- this was not the whole purpose in everything. This is just just a little Bitty, uh, just a just a little drop compared to the true promised land, true salvation being in the presence of God Himself. So He's calling them out, saying, "Hey, that that is something." And yes, that many did enter into that promised land. They're in that promised geographical land, but those were symbols that they're looking to the ultimate, which is in the being in the presence of God, the promised land, the ultimate promised land, heaven. Uh, he speaks of this today. You see him, note, he keeps emphasizing today if you hear his voice. It is an emphatic call for them to check to make sure today if you are alive, you hear this message going out that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to enter the promised lands. Do not harden your heart. You hear it, check it, make sure that your soul truly believes in him. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, there's also a lot going on in this passage here that this rest and what does this rest look like? This rest is guaranteed. It is promised to all who truly believe in Jesus. Turn with me over to John chapter 14. I haven't had you turn too much today. I'm trying to speed through this a little bit if it was possible for me to do such a thing. John chapter 14. Andrew Anderson is going to teach. For I know some of you will want to uh, head out after the service uh, in just a few moments to, uh, to get caught up on the game. and That's absolutely fine for those of you that choose to stay for discipleship. Tonight he's going to be teaching on Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath rest? And do we still honor the Sabbath? And what does that look like? Uh, today, So it's going to be a very interesting topic for those of you that want to stay. So I'm not going to dwell on this too much since he is going to do such a good job taking care of that. But we see here that this this ultimate rest that is promised to believers uh, that that we trust in the one who did all the work for us. We get to heaven not based on our work that we do, but we get to heaven based on the one who does the the perfect work. And that is the God man. He represents us perfectly. And he takes our place It's this substitution. His life is perfect. He goes on the cross. He takes our sins upon him. And he does all the work for us. And that we trust in the one who did all the work and who is rested from his work. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, that, that atoning, that saving work is finished. And this is the one we trust in. And that we will one day be Due to technical difficulties, the recording ends here.